Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racism Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. Today, we will be talking to Javier Morales, Executive Director and Board Member for the Praxis Project, and Judith LeBlanc, Executive Director, Native Organizers Alliance, and Citizen of the Cadu Nation. My name is Rakaya Yerby, and I am co-founder and director of the Community Research Ethics arm of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity, as well as Akara J. Trott, professor in health law at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law. I want to welcome both of you here today, and we are going to talk about anti-racist health policy and structural racism in the healthcare system. I want to turn it over to Judith LeBlanc first, just to give a brief introduction of herself, and then we'll move over to Javier Morales. Well, I, I really want to thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Um, my name is Judith LeBlanc. I'm a citizen of the Caddo Nation. I am the executive director of the Native Organizers Alliance, and the Native Organizers Alliance is very unique group in Indian country because we were founded out of the grassroots mobilization for the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And out of that experience at the grassroots on reservations in urban areas, it was felt that we needed in Indian country a place to train and reflect on how we have always built community. And that is the key to any kind of social change and the Affordable Care Act was one of those moments in history where Native people at the grassroots, you know, joined this, this surge for the right to health care. And uh, that's how we were founded. Great. Thank you. Javier? Yeah, and I'm Javier Morales. Um, you know, thank you for the invitation to be here, Rakaya, and just love being on the same um, panel with uh, Judith always. Um, I'm the executive director for the Praxis Project, Javier Morales. Um, him pronouns and uh, the Praxis Project. We work with base building, power building organizers across the country to transform those systems, structures, policies that underlie inequity. And we also work with our institutional partners. Um, and depending on what the audience or the conversation, sometimes we we, we think of uh, institutional partners as gatekeepers for some of the change that we really need to see happen. They can be catalysts and they can be gatekeepers. And so we try to work with our institutional partners to better center community and equity. And then the, we also work with philanthropy to to better understand just like the learnings from the from our frontline partners, just what's needed to help um, catalyze their work, to, to have greater impact, you know, as we all work towards better health, uh, better equity and, and a more just, uh, more just society for all of us to grow and thrive in. Well, thank you. So let's start off with 
when you hear the phrase critical teachers, what does that mean to you and your work? Um, you can talk about anti-racist health policy, structural racism in healthcare system, or just broadly. Well, critical futures, it, it's such an important concept because there's so much commonality between all of humanity. And so for Native peoples, for tribal communities, for traditional communities, for, for urban Indian communities, one of the biggest questions we grapple with is how do we look to the horizon of a fulfillment of sovereignty? And sovereignty being a very basic democratic principle, which means responding to the idea that every, every Native nation's country signed a treaty which guaranteed health care from birth to death. And because we have not achieved our sovereignty, 70% of all Indians live in urban areas and therefore are not entitled to our treaty right, which is, in the end, in the final analysis, is a, a human right, and that is the access to health care. And so one element of our work in Indian country is to bring people together at the grassroots level to influence on policy. and we believe that not only do we have solutions that flow from our, our uh, national community, nation community, urban experiences, but I think that the you know, medicine and science are, are beginning to understand that you have to start from the beginning. You have to start from where the problems exist. And because of the many health problems in Indian country, I think we're we're pretty much focused on how is it how is it that we work together with our allies to start at the point of of the problem and to come forward with the kind of solutions that can make healthcare a human right. Thank you, Javier. I've learned a lot in my interactions with our base building partners and our power building partners, including um, Judith and a lot of the groups that she works with. And some of the learnings that I have when we talk about critical and futures. For me, when I think about futures, I think about, you know, to, to, I think about the long-term future. What is it that we're trying to get to? What's the vision that we're trying to achieve? And then when I think about critical, I feel that some of our solutions that we propose to some of the problems that our most marginalized communities are facing, that we're, we're that we're kind of stuck on outcomes, like changing the outcomes to, and that, that by addressing the outcomes, we're going to achieve justice and equity, but really, that to me, that's looking at um, that's that's not looking at the issue critically. Because if we want to look at it critically, we have to understand the power relations that underlie the system structures and policies and practices that have not only led us to where we are today, where we have this inequity in space, but also how we try to solve these issues. Who needs to be at the table? Who needs to who needs to be uh, helping to define what the actual problem is to design the solutions and also to be the implementers of the solutions? So so for me, when we talk about critical, you know, it, it adds a whole other dimension to the futures that, that we want to see. And we need to be laying the groundwork now, not by just addressing outcomes. We need to do that. 
but we have to figure out how we transform those systems. And as Judith was saying, we do it in partnership, collaboration, and working together. And, and that's the way we're, we're going to be able to see the change that we want to see for the future. Thank you. I think both of you highlight some critical issues at this point. One, the rights that we were promised, um, particularly the right to health care, and having the power to make sure that that right becomes a reality is critical. So I want to move us to a next point, which is what are the most critical pressing issues that you see related to health policy or structural racism in the healthcare system? I know for me right now, it is the focus on the continued misuse of race in the healthcare system and the continued lack of power that uh, racial and ethnic minorities have to make that change to be able to access the health care that they need. And so I would like to hear more about what you think are some of the pressing issues, Javier, and then turning it to you, Judith. For me, in the advocacy work that we do, what we find is that the other side of the issues that we're working on, whether it's housing, reproductive rights, climate change, uh, uh, food system security, nutrition security, what we find is that on the other side of the issue, we have these industries that are making huge profits off of our people getting sick, our communities getting sick. And to me, in all of the advocacy work that we do, and, you know, been walking through the halls of different legislatures, and it's like we go into an office and right behind us, you have someone from industry walking in and, you know, pitching their, their part of the story. And it's, it's become accepted that we trade away health, and especially health in the most marginalized communities, for these corporations to to thrive and to make these absurd profits that they're making. But but the 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 issue, the critical issue here within all of this is that the industries, from our experience, are entrenched in our political system to the point where they actually can write the laws and they help the laws to get passed and they help to enforce the laws. And so that power that they have to do that the, the, the issue for me is how do we counter that power? We have to be able to counter that power. And unless, if we're still out trying to just do more research and more gather more data and do more model ordinances, we're going to keep getting the same results we're getting now. We need to keep doing that, but we need to add a whole other dimension to this work that we do, which is to try to figure out how do we offset that power that these industries are bringing to the table? Because unless we address that, we're going to keep doing this work into the future, and we're going to keep having these trend lines that always have white populations with you know best outcomes. Then you have everyone else with different trend lines underneath, and it's like that's baked into the reality that we have because our solutions, if we're not addressing the root cause, the critical causes of of, of these issues, we're going to just keep reinforcing these trend lines. So that's that's what I think is the most critical part of what we need to do. And you know, I I totally agree with. 
what Javier is saying, because in Indian country, the two biggest obstacles we have to health and well-being is profiteering by by the by the uh, pharmaceuticals, especially, but by the you know the medical industrial complex, and secondly, chronic underfunding by the federal government, chronic underfunding of healthcare, and so. When you, when you look more broadly beyond Indian country, it is a majority opinion in this country that healthcare should be a right, that pharmaceuticals should not be making record profits off of COVID, off of, off of the biggest interruption, political, social, economic interruption. It's been the biggest interruption in every arena of life, and they have mega profits because of the vaccines. That's just wrong. Wrong in, in every sense of the word. So for Indian country, there's there's a number of different um, experiences that we're having, though, that shows that if you go to the grassroots and you begin to organize our political power to have impact, even in this most hostile environment that we are, operate in as a community of color, as as nations within this nation, there's, there's two examples that jump out and, and present opportunities. One is in Seattle, the Seattle Health Board, serving an urban Indian community, many, many tribes. And they have established a whole department to incorporate traditional healing practices and to engage medicine people from the broader community to work alongside of the medicals, the clinic. That is so powerful because it Number one, it acknowledges that there are solutions that have been since the beginning of time, good solutions for certain kinds of health problems. And it shows by the Indian Health Board that they are 21st century Indians. They are weaving science with traditional ways. And if you, when you think about it, it's natural. We can't privilege one over the other if we're going to find solutions to some of the long-term problems that affect all of our peoples, like the high uh, incidence of cardiovascular disease or diabetes. And I, I think that President Biden actually made a, a really astute insight into why indigenous peoples bring medicine into the social and economic and political uh, uh, gumbos that we're all in. When he uh, made an executive order to ensure that every department was looking at traditional traditional knowledge and to draw from traditional knowledge. And you see, Native peoples, our struggle is to not privilege our vantage point over the Western vantage point or allow for the Western vantage point to be privileged over an Indigenous vantage point. We have to find ways, because of the complex problems of providing health care, of of ensuring that it's quality healthcare that's appropriate for each community requires the weaving of cultural values and and uh, uh, medicine and science. I would say that another example of how at at the grassroots and tribal level there are approaches to problems. So uh, the Osheti Shakoan tribes, the Lakota Nakota Dakota tribes in South Dakota. Uh, five of them got together. Ten percent of the population of Rapid City uh, is native from all the 
all of the Osheti tribes from all over South Dakota and, of course, beyond, they go to Rapid City. That's the place where we go. When I used to live in South Dakota back in the day in the 70s, that's where we'd go to parody. I mean, because it's a city. I mean, a little city, but it's a city, right? And they and many people go there. They look for jobs. They have families there that have been there now, multi-generations, that go back and forth between the res, but live in Rapid City. While we were facing some extremely racist uh, policies from the regional hospital, in fact, there was one nurse that was recently fired because she went on a racist rant on Facebook about Indians in the, in the regional hospital. So the tribes got together, put money together, put money together, federal monies together, and opened up just about two months ago a city clinic where they are, number one, it's run by Indians, it is for Indians, and they're able to therefore meet the needs of all the Native people in that city and to build relationships with the regional hospital, to build relationships with the other healthcare systems that, are, that is premised on, a, on the basis of equity, that we are pursuing giving our people quality healthcare, and we have to work together. It's not a hospital, it's a clinic. And I think even in these troubled times, that shows the way that we have to have more community control over how services are provided, because, because that's that's what will make people come to get healthcare in a preventative way, but also that's what gives people hope that it is possible that we could create a multiracial democracy that actually works well for everyone. Thank you for that. That was so inspiring. And I want to just pick up on some things that both of you said in terms of some of the critical issues. One is that we really need to focus on root causes, particularly around the fact that in this day and time, we are undermining democracy and um, and the sovereignty, right? That when we think about protection of rights, when we think about getting access to health care, it might be on the books that everybody is supposed to get equal access to health care. I think, Judith, in your first response about coming together under the Affordable Care Act, what was so amazing about that law was that it gave additional protections against discrimination to so many groups that didn't have it before, particularly women, right? You think that in 2000, it was still okay to discriminate against women in healthcare before the Affordable Care Act. And so it is key for us to be able to have the power and to be able to take our democracy back from those who are profiting over um, our poor health and being able to pass a lot of laws and bills that actually prevent people from getting equal access to health care. And so I want to ask you a follow-up question just based off of what you said. How do we begin to reimagine um, the political system to be able to address some of these root causes? And particularly, I want to start with you, Javier, because your organization really focuses on power building. Um, And so I want to hear more about what you're thinking about building community power to be able to change the political system. When I think about 
building power and you know trying to transform this political system. I, I take a look and just see what's happening across the country where it feels like it's intentional to disenfranchise people again. You know, the 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 repeal of the Voting Rights Act, the uh, the uh, shutting down of uh, electoral uh, drop off boxes in some key states. Um, you know, you see, you see, you see that there's an intentional uh, push, especially, and you know, maybe it's just highlighted because they're battleground states, but especially in these battleground states where you see uh, parties that are uh, fighting for every single vote, so every vote they can get denied is that really it really matters. It really means a lot. It really can change the outcome of, of systems. So, you know, we also have to take a look at. Uh, our political system where, you know, every uh, four years you have a, a flood of folks coming in to say, you know, you really need to back us because if you don't back us, you're going to get something else that's going to be really bad for you. And uh, if the folks who are elected into office, uh, because we go out and we do all of this grassroots work and we go door to door and we convince folks to come in, if the electeds don't follow through, you know that just kind of reinforces the narrative that that okay we'll see you in in, in four years but you know thank you for getting us to the power at least you're not going to get that guy but then they the movement that they have is is, is that they're not really doing what they need to do to help change happen but I, I don't want to I'm painting with a really broad brush here because there has been some really good uh, orders executive orders and some legislation that have benefited our our communities that aren't able to get through. Our legislatures, look at immigration reform. That's a big one right there. We can't get anything through there. So, you know, you have our, ele- our, 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 our executive folks that are trying to figure out what, what is it that we can do. And so I'll just finish here. The root cause here, again, is we've got many areas of the country where it's been intentional, even the gerrymandering that's happening to just limit the ability for uh, diversity in uh in a, in 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 candidates to even be able to surface so you know it's our, our political system the way it said this representative democracy the way it is and the influence that uh you know industry has in them it really isn't as democratic as we think it is and the only way we're going to be able to change that is to build this grassroots power but we have to do it in a way where they have confidence in that the systems are going to change. And I think that this is a big challenge for us right now, especially those of us that are on the ground working day to day, trying to um, trying to affect change. Cause we go out and we convince somebody to go vote and then they don't see the changes happen or the changes, the opposite of what uh, uh, we're trying to help them see, you know, happens. And so it's, this is consistent. It's a lot of work. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of funding for this work either. It's like we need a sustained funding source to be able to continue to do this groundwork that 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 needs to happen to change these power relations. Thank you. And I'm going to come back later in our discussion about funding. But I'm going to turn now to you, Judith, to hear more specifics about what your organization is doing. I love the examples that you gave with the Seattle Health Board and the other group working in their own communities, taking control and giving the support um, that was needed for their community. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about other things you have done as the executive director of the Native Organizers Alliance? Well, I think from from my experience in the last several years, we have to take a holistic view, vantage point to what well-being is, what is health and well-being in our communities. And we've had to develop kind of the eagle's eye view of of policy questions, looking from from a perspective of all that all things are in relationship. From that indigenous framework, an understanding of a problem has to be understood within what is it related to? What how are things in motion and in what direction? Um and I think that our the two examples that I I gave to you are examples where there were some resources, federal and private, and um, there there was a uh, indigenous understanding of how the past and the future meet in the present. That's the time continuum, and so therefore, what you do in the present is 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 really the only place we. We're in understanding what has gone on before, and then the hopes and dreams of what we want our descendants to live like come together. And so in Seattle, that's, again, very uh, uh, strong leadership in giving people an understanding of the vision of where we're going and how we're going to get there. And that is weaving science with our belief systems. That's how we're going to get there. That's how we've got, that's how we continue to exist even under great duress. And so I think because we've had to develop this perspective of how, how things are moving, then in our work on environmental justice, when we were working on the, trying to prevent the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock Reservation, which is in South Dakota and North Dakota, it's one of the Osheti Shakoan tribes. Um, we needed to help do public education and popular education about the fact that water is life. And that captured the imagination of people globally. People began to relate and think about water in a different way. Not pipelines, but water. Water. That's long-term uh, 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 building up of a political understanding of social consciousness of that we are in relationship with the natural world and that our pipeline would interrupt and destroy a good and important relationship, not only for the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, but for 17 million who live, love, and work along the shores of the Missouri downriver from the Standing Rock tribe. And I, I, I think that it was such a, it taught me so much about how health and well-being has to be seen from that perspective, that it's it's bigger than the highest incident of cardiovascular disease. It's about what is it about a community that that is the key link in getting people to understand their relationship to the natural world and therefore and therefore what they can do now for health and well-being in their in their communities. And in uh, Standing Rock right now in Cannonball, which was the town where where the where the uh, organizing began, 
around the prevention of the Dakota Access Pipeline. There is now a community initiative where they are building alternative energy sources. They are working together in order to create and build on that rise in consciousness, a, a way of empowering people by, by doing something in their own community. So I think you can, and what we call that is emergent power, because in this system, in the system that we exist in, sovereignty could never be realized. We have to have a more deeply democratic political system and a more deeply democratic economic system in order for sovereignty and, and the nations within this nation, tribal nations, to actually be economic regenerative environments. And so economic regenerative environment, creating ways that people can become employed in making the community better, that's health and well-being. So I think we have to call upon the, the federal government and, and also philanthropy to understand that health and well-being is not, not just how many teens commit suicide. It's about the holistic picture, that eagle's eye view of what makes for health and well-being in the day-to-day -day lives of, of people, community people, people you know on the ground. And, and frankly, there were so many aha moments. Thank you, COVID. There were so many aha moments because people now, I think, have a broader kind of vantage point of, of what health and, being, health and well-being should be. But they also understand that we're all in relationship. Who knew we'd be concerned about the health and well-being of people in Wuhan, China? And, and we are. We're concerned about the health and well-being of people all over the world. And in Indian country, our experience was so unique because we had some of the most infectious places in the country, like the Navajo Reservation or Lower Brule Reservation. So in South Dakota, one of the tribes uh, began a tracking system, set up a roadblock, began tracking before the feds did. And the governor, Governor Nome, threatened legal action to stop them from tracking, to stop the spread of COVID in their nation. Or you look at, there, there were a number of places in the country, they asked for uh, PPE materials to be sent to Indian health clinics in cities, as well as the Navajo Reservation, which was one of the most infectious places in the country, and they got body bags. They were sent a ton of body bags. And so uh, people began to think, well, you know, we've, we've got to take things into our own own hands in a lot of ways. And on Navajo, there was an amazing, many places, you know, Navajo reservations the size of Ireland, but there were so many community-based sharing of food, doing, you know, circuits, people going around to visit the people so that they could make sure that nobody was in their home and isolated without water or heat or without medical attention. Beautiful, beautiful, you know, sharing of food and resources. So. I'm very optimistic in the work that we do that that people that there are always people at the grassroots roots who are going to step up and create the definitions that should be guiding philanthropy and and health policy people the community based community initiated solutions to respond to the urgent health needs and to the broader long term uh, trend of how people are living in a given community. So that they have a, they they are living in a health and 
and and safe environment. Thank you so much for that, because there are so many key points I want to highlight. One of the things that you said just now, but also in your first discussion about critical futures, was that this work is about connecting and balancing all the cultures, right, of really trying to bring us all together to understand that we as humans need each other and have a relationship with the natural world. And so the things that we're working on with health go beyond health. I know in my work during COVID, I focused exactly on what you said about how uh, the Native nations their data, they couldn't get the data from the CDC about even how many COVID infections they had. As they were sovereigns themselves, their powers were challenged to try to protect their communities. And even more important, when they got the power to actually get vaccines and allocate them, that many of those nations then gave the extra to other communities. Right. And I think that oftentimes when people hear anti-racist health policy or structural racism and they think that the leaders of that work are trying to rush forward and say, give it all to me. And what has been amazing about this podcast, it really is how can we all work together because we are all impacted. And if we work together, we can improve the lives of all right? Because that's what we are committed to. And the final thing I want to highlight is just how you mentioned, um, and Javier, you mentioned this too, is that we have to have a broad understanding of health and well-being. We get to the end and just look at, oh, it's so many people dying from cardiovascular disease or suicide, and we don't connect it to the air, to the pollution, to the lack of water to the lack of actually having a job so that you can take care of your community. And how much better would it be, Judith, as you mentioned this, I love it, when you said we can employ people to actually keep their community healthy, right? So now they're working, they can take care of their family, but their community is healthy too. And that's a long-term solution. So I want to thank you for that. And just want to give Javier an opportunity to talk about the work that Praxis is doing to address some of these issues. Um, yeah, you know, exactly what you just said right now, uh, Rakaya. You know, for us, one of the most powerful campaigns that we've seen was when the California Endowment did their Health Happens Here uh, campaign, where they had billboards up across the state where it was a split screen. On one half of the split screen, it would show someone that lived in a, one zip code and another, and the other side was someone that lived in a second zip code. And I know this data from exactly where Praxis's office is in Oakland, in the Fruitvale area, that life expectancy in the Fruitvale area was 72 years. And you just go east two miles into the hills of Oakland, and life expectancy is now 88. And when you start to look at, you know, what those ingredients of, you know, what gives and takes away these days of life, these years of life, it isn't just access to healthcare. It's important. Healthcare, access to healthcare is important. But everything that Judith just said, it's like it's an ecosystem. It's, it's, it's people that vote, people that, you know, good, you know, schools, uh, it's good food, it's good housing, it's good air, it's clean, you know, it's clean water. It's all of these things. 
And so for us, you know, Praxis, we're agnostic about what issues our community partners are working on uh, because we understand this bigger picture of health. And not only are we agnostic, what does the thread that once that does run through all of our community partners is that we care about them building power as they address the issues that are most important to them. So we're not coming in at the national level and saying, okay, we've got money for water. And so everybody, you got to do water work, or we've got money for, uh, you know, clean air. So everybody we're doing clean air work. What we care, what we've learned from working with Judith and like, we've learned this from Judith, her partners and others is that communities are smart. They're already working on the issues that are most important to them. They have the context to define the issue and to also define what the solution should be and also are the best ones to deliver the solutions. And so again, you know, when I look at these um, different uh, determinants of health that are happening in an area, I see them as opportunity to identify other allies that can come to the table to help us on this bigger issue of health that we're working on. But the most important thing is, you know, being able to give folks the freedom to work on what's most important to them and not trying to change them to fit us. And that's the way I feel we're going to have the most progress in, 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 in improving health, wellness, and, and just opportunities for people to thrive. So much of what Javier is describing, you know, we, sh we in the 21st century, should not act as though we're discovering Plymouth Rock because this is the way humankind has always lived. It's always, no matter what continent, no matter what community, there is this weaving together of, of people who are, are concerned and will step forward and into, you know, whatever needs to be done. We know that. I don't care if you're in a union, in a church, in a Parent Teachers Association. There's there's always a certain number of folks who are ready. They're ready to get things gelled. They're thinking about how to move things, and and that natural urgency has to and and has to be organized. But it also there's also an importance for narrative, making sure that we understand what has happened. How did we get here? Where are we going? That narrative lifts people up, causes people to think, and we also need a cultural strategy. People aren't just going to be, healthcare is a human right, done. No, no. You know, healthcare for Indian people, that's a treaty right. It's part of our sovereignty. But as well, it is a human right. It is something that we are not only entitled to because of our treaties, but because we're human. And, and so I think what Javier is describing is how we have to have strategies in every community where we're weaving an organizing strategy, which uses every tool in the toolbox from elections to protests to policy papers. We have to have, we have, to have a narrative strategy. Sometimes you lead with it by exposing and telling the stories of past, future, or present. And you have to have a cultural strategy. We have to lead with our values. If you can, any, you can say, in this moment, when the right wing in this country, who is diametrically opposed to healthcare being a human right for all, they're on the ascendancy. They lead with their values. 
I don't agree with with what they think are, are is important and the values they promote. But we have to do the same thing. We have to have a cultural strategy where we're we're building a sense of belonging. We're building a sense of community. We're building a sense of being on that time continuum together in relationship. So it's got to be an organizing strategy. It's got to be a narrative strategy, and it's got to be a cultural strategy. Can, can I can I just add? Sorry, sorry Rakaya, but um, can I just add to that? Some of the thing that's mo- things that are most disappointing to me and some other collaboratives that I work on, especially ones on narrative change, or is that the narrative starts now. It's ahistorical, and when the narrative starts now, and it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't acknowledge what's happened in the past. It almost feels like it's the individuals that are experiencing the worst outcomes. It's it's their fault when it's really a structural systemic issue. You know, water rights were negotiated over a hundred years ago. Zoning. It's not another thing that's commonly used across the country and it's seen as innocuous. That was developed over a hundred years ago as well, and it was a very racist. Uh, underpinnings that cause that, and so you know, I, I feel like I feel like this is the part that's missing. And every time I get asked to 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 to, to comment on things, I feel like I'm always saying the same thing. We need to bring in the history. How did we get here? It was it was by design, and even if it wasn't by design overtly, it was by design structurally. And that's what's led us to be where we are now. So any narrative change, any efforts that we need to do, and we always lead with this with our young folk, because, you know, they ask why. And we always lead with the why. And then not only do we talk about the why, we talk about the North Star. What's this future that we want to see? And, you know, we, we got to have that trajectory. Where are we coming from? What's happened in the past? Where do we want to go? Yeah, that's so true. And particularly as you both highlight some of the things that are going on in the government, where they're trying to limit access to knowledge about history, particularly when we think about the healthcare system, many of the funding bills, particularly the Hill Burden Act that funded our hospital system, explicitly allowed for states to discriminate against racial and ethnic minorities. And that was in place all the way up through the 60s. And then when they changed it, they just required them to remove some of the signs. They pushed some integration, but it wasn't a full commitment to making sure that everybody had equal access to health care. So if we just start now with the Affordable Care Act, you don't understand the history of how it was put into place. And unless you actively uh, go back and remove some of those systems and structures and organizations that are still providing the health care, you're going to get the same outcome. But what I love and what I hear from both of you is we have to lead with our values, but this hopefulness and optimism about what we can accomplish. And so I want to move now to talking about, in this hopeful, optimistic view, what can funders do and what can the government do to support the work that you are doing? Well, the, the first and foremost, funders have to trust the communities in which they're invested. 
Number two, we need we need them to fund ecosystems, not just individuals or individual groups that they happen to know about. And in Indian country, you know, still it's less than one percent of all philanthropy um, goes to Indian country, and um, I think there's a, a, a changing attitude and more a beginning to think about what what is their relationship to Indian country, tribal nations, and urban communities. And, and number three, we need general operating because health is a holistic approach, as, as Javier was describing. And the fact is that, we, for, for example, we work very closely with um, uh, an Indian center in a major city. They're, they're a center that provides services as well as civic engagement. And they provide civic engagement based on their experiences in providing health services. We, we also have worked with a traditional women's society who was running a, a, um, a domestic violence um, shelter on a reservation. And what they began to do is to ask people who were coming into the center seeking help whether or not they were registered to vote, and if not, registering them to vote. And so I think, I think funders have to understand that there, there is a critical role for supporting the activities of groups in, in general, but also not being afraid of that civic engagement, not being afraid of integrated voter engagement where the, because the, they have to recognize that political power is being built between elections. Elections don't create power. Elections are a snapshot of the political power that we have, that we've built over between the election cycles. And then it's a snapshot. And then the situation changes and we begin again in building and broadening that power. And, and in between the elections is where we see the nature of our power. So therefore, the Willow Project, drilling by Conoco, in the Arctic, um, there, the announcement was made that they would be allowed to drill and that they, they would be allowed to drill in an area where they had been pursuing permits for over a decade. It was limited. 40% of what they were wanted was taken away. Other leases were taken away in other parts of, of the Arctic. Um, there was uh, land set aside to protect subsistence hunters and, and fishing people, Native Alaskans. And so when you look at that decision by the Biden administration, who's been the strongest advocate for tribal sovereignty and for funding uh, a green economy, move, get, we, we're beginning to uh, put more qualitatively, more resources into green energy, some people said they screwed us. What I say is that it's a reflection of our power. Number one, we do not have the power of the, of the fossil fuel industries to control who gets permits. We don't have the power to, to, to change things within legal frameworks. It's Biden administration inherited a leasing a permitting process that's been fought over for over a decade. And number three, without us and the constant building of this majority movement around climate crisis and the health of Mother Earth and therefore all people, then they wouldn't have been able to force 
you know, cutting 40% of the drilling, expanding, you know, the protection for uh, animals and fish and water, or or uh, uh, taking back some of the leases that had already been awarded. So it's a reflection of our power. Conoco has more power right now than the climate justice movement. But it, it, it we have to recognize where we're at in order to have sound tactics. So I, I really think funders have to understand that that is the rubric for us, how we're using every tool possible, and that they shouldn't be afraid of, of us being loud and proud about majority issues like climate change, like the right to health care, uh, the right to end uh, gun violence in a meaningful way. I feel like there has been movement with some of the big funders to trust more, and I really appreciate that. Um, I also appreciate the movement towards uh, having more of an em uh, emergent evaluation type of an approach rather than coming in with a hypothesis and constructing a whole research project and funding to support, to, to test it. I, I like that they are trusting organizations and they have been giving more general support. And, you know, I, I, I feel like we're headed in the right direction. We need more to do it. And, you know, it's from, from where I sit, it's always bigger grants, better, longer term grants, better, uh, general support, better. Um, but, you know, when we evaluate what we're doing, we need to make sure that we're evaluating the right things because, you know, they want to they want to make sure that they're they're having an impact. And we want them to have an impact, especially when they're, they're starting to align with anti, you know, the, the anti-racist work that we're doing, the justice work that we're doing and the equity work that we're doing. We want them to be able to show the impact. So, you know, making sure that, you know, we're not out there measuring how fast a fish can climb a tree. You know, we want to make sure that we're measuring what really matters, especially to community, we got to have diverse folks around the table that 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 are defining what success means. And you know, in some parts of the country, where you have state legislatures that are that are not, let's just call it not equity forward. <laughs> you know, the the progress <laughs> the progress that can be made by groups in those states. They might only, you know, they, you know, the, the the journey is A to Z. They may only be able to get to to D because of just how hard that work is. And in those places, I really feel we need to to really invest in the infrastructure and fabric of the communities that can actually continue to advocate and promote, let's call it equity forward policies. Because unless we have that counterbalance, you know, we're going to keep getting what we've got, and it gets really bad when. Some of these rural states, given our political structure, actually have in, inordinate, disproportionate power over other issues. And so, you know, it just, I appreciate where a lot of funders are going. Um, and I think they've hurt us. And I think they're trying. And, you know, we got to we got to keep uh, walking with them and having them walk with us so that we can continue to refine this this nuance and so they can better understand what it's like coming from our from our perspective from from the ground, um, and they're a part. We're a partnership. We're a partnership with them, and I, I deeply appreciate how um, many of them are centering equity cent and not just equity, the noun, equity, the outcome, but equity, the verb, equity, the process. I feel like they're really moving in that direction, and I deeply appreciate when they do. All right, last question. I want to ask you. What's the one thing you would say to people entering this work? 
uh, to have hope. You know, uh, we have over 400 years of resistance. We're still here. And, you know, something that we're drawing on, it's culture, it's family, it's, it's relationships. It's, you know, that this is where it starts from. Um, and we just need to carry that hope, carry that hope forward. You know, I, I think for many of us, we do the work that we do in organizing uh, because we, we love our people, we love our communities, we love Mother Earth. Um, and I think the definition of love is very clear-cut. It's about accountability and responsibility. And that we, I think, organizers and people who, who are, are, are at the grassroots, they, I, I think that that's what I'm learning, that that love of people is, is really kind of the, and humanity and Mother Earth is like a, a core value, that it's hard to walk in balance, or as the Navajo call it, walk in beauty, where you're, you're not reactive, but you're responding and you're 360 degrees aware of your surroundings and searching always for perspective, to see the bigger picture, to be looking to the horizon. Um, because life is hard and the right wing in this country is on the ascendancy. It's the most dangerous political period we've been in for some time. And we, and we, we have to weave our, our values with our narrative and organizing strategies in order to be effective. And um, I realize that some people are going to sign a petition. Many people are going to go out into the streets and march. We've learned that. People are accustomed to doing that now. When you look at the response to the murder of George Floyd. But also what we need are uh, it's the funding of organizations like Praxis and Native Organizers Alliance and many others who provide an infrastructure so that when people are understanding their love, their responsibility, their accountability, when they're feeling the urgency, when when they're ready to 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 get into the streets or get into the suites and and advocate for policies, organizations have to be there to provide the infrastructure to help people do that. And I think that for there are some people who say, well, the 50C, 501c3 industrial complex, you know, it's just people getting, you know, making money off the problems people know. If you are an effective 501c3 and you're being funded by philanthropy, your role is critical in providing an infrastructure for people to be able to gain the political, social, and personal skills to affect change transformational change and that carries a lot of responsibility but i'm so happy to be an organizer at this time even though i'm an elder i think this is the best rodeo i've ever been to and i've been to a lot of rodeos uh, in the organizing arena for many decades so this is a good time to be an organizer well, I want to take this time to thank both of our guests. I want to thank our listeners. For me, this has been inspirational, and I am grateful and thankful that I have been able to be a part of this. And so I just want to thank you. 
and um, look forward to um, our other podcast on anti-racist healthcare and structural racism. Thank you for listening to the Critical Features podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.